The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. So I think that we are, I mean, we're going to be a game changer in the vertical farming space. And I say that for a couple of reasons. So yes, you've got your, you know, your, what I call industrial size guys in vertical farming, you know, both as well as, you know, the venture capitalist money where they're putting it in vertical farming. It's all these, you know, kind of behemoth implementations, right? Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 4. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, yes, 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 you're in the right place in case you were lost somewhere in the podosphere. It's the one where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Last week, we had a special episode, round two, with co-founder and managing director at Cultivated, Eric Levesque. Regular listeners are no strangers to the great team at Cultivated. It was great to get an update on their recent Series A $3 million round and some of the new projects they had in the works. And it's always fun to hear what's happening in their world as they're connected to so many interesting projects that are getting off the ground. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dandridge Melton, the CEO of Vertical Growth Farming Systems. It's an organization that's seeking to change the way that the world approaches hunger, malnutrition, natural disasters, and the effects traditional farming has on our environment through their unique container farms. And in this episode, we discuss the vertical farming landscape, competitors to their system, and how Dandridge's entrepreneurial spirit has contributed to his success in this immensely important field. We talk about the future of farming and why education is critical. If we as a planet are going to be able to adapt to agricultural challenges we're soon facing, Dandridge shares his profound belief in the project and talks more about his mission to change the way the world feeds itself. Really love hearing stories of entrepreneurs as I am one myself, and uh, this is really an inspiring conversation. I know you'll like it. 
Excited to be partnering once again with Indoor AgCon. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, Indoor AgCon can help you grow your vertical farming business. This year, the premier trade show and conference for vertical farming and controlled environment agriculture heads to Caesars Forum Las Vegas. I'm tempted to do an Elvis impersonation, but I'll hold off on that. It's going to be February 28th through March 1st this year to co-locate with the National Growers Association show. You can explore an expo floor filled with new product resources and business solutions, attend educational sessions by the top CEOs and thought leaders, and connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at great networking events. And it's looking like I'll actually be there myself, so be on the lookout for me. I'll see if I can get some t-shirts made for the podcast to make it easy. And I'll also be looking to connect with some previous hosts. You can save an additional 25% off registration with our new promo code VFPOD22. That's VFPOD22. And you can learn more about the conference at indoor.ag. As always, ratings and reviews can be left at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. All right, without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Dandridge. So Dandridge Melton, founder of... Vertical Growth Farming Systems. Thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So where's home for you? I'm currently located in San Luis Obispo, California. Okay. So on the central coast, halfway between uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. I've uh, been here uh, 21 years. Beginning ready to move on the 15th of April, moving to uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. Wow. What's the impetus for that move? So I... Connected with a economic development group there called Upstate Alliance. Okay. And we're going to start manufacturing there this time next year. And so they have a lot of tax incentives, grant monies uh, for small to medium-sized manufacturers like myself. So California has just become extremely difficult to, to you know, start and run a small business. Yeah, I lived, I'm in Minneapolis now. I've been a bit nomadic. I grew up in New York, so I, I, I'm very, very familiar with uh, the East Coast. Left in 2014 and lived in LA for four years. So I'm also familiar with okay. <laughs> LA and that part of the country. Yeah, it's been challenging to see what's been happening there with everything related to the pandemic and the weather and, and the wildfires. And it's just been, I, and you could probably speak to that better, how crazy it's been. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I moved here with a, so this is my fifth startup, uh, fourth as a founder. And the one where I wasn't the founder, I was, I was employee number two with a high-tech startup in Prescott, Arizona. And we moved here to uh, San Luis because of Cal Poly. We were a hardware and software developer and Cal Poly is just a great engineering school. And our engineer was a Cal Poly alum. So we wanted to tap into their, that resource. That's what brought me to California. I'm originally uh, born and raised in Northern Virginia, just outside of the DC Beltway. Okay. And yeah, it's been, it's uh, like I said, this being my fifth startup, I've, I've started a couple businesses here. California is, you know, just uber expensive, pretty much on every level, just even, you know, daily living, you know, cost of milk. You know, I think I paid 489 for a gallon of gas yesterday. Wow. And again, just, you know, uh, as a small business person and, you know, having limited resources, it's, it's tough to start and grow a business in California. The, you know, the permitting, the, oh, the, the cost, uh, and yeah, outside of that, I mean, here, you know, highway one, they just had some more rock slides. We got a lot of rain the last couple of weeks and 
uh, of course, the wildfires. Uh, it's a great spot here on the Central Coast. I mean, we're in some pretty nice wine country. Yeah. You know, the weather's typically always amazing. But my wife, and again, being from the East Coast, I have four siblings. My parents are kind of sprinkled from D.C. to Miami. So okay. we're looking forward to the moves, you know, the four, four seasons. Yeah. And having our dollar go much further than it they can here in California. It's interesting, the four seasons, because I'm now in, in the Midwest and I never imagined I'd, I'd be here. But that's what love does to you sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's, love does make you do crazy things, right? <laughs> yeah, and so we went up north for New Year's. My partner's parents have a cabin up there and, and uh, just about an hour and a half or two hours north. And he's like, you guys know it's minus 25 right now. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's like, well, we're going to be in the cabin and it's only one day. And then, and then it warms up. It gets to minus five. So. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Keep the fire going and bring yes. along Johns. And I did do a uh, snowshoot for the first time ever. So that was fun. Oh, how was it? It was cool. Well, they're modern because I, I think I'm I'm 51. So I'm like old school. And I okay. when I think of snowshoes, I think of like these wooden things like Swiss Family Robinson. And <laughs> totally. It wasn't that way at all? No, they're fiberglass now. They're really light. Probably not as big either, are they? Or No, not as big either and easy to use. And then the heel is not connected to the bottom. So as you're walking... You're sort of like a more natural yeah it's more natural walking it's, it takes a little bit of used to but then you are you can you can go in deep snow and not sink all the way in which is fun and i think with everything else it's just you spoke about the four seasons i think there is something inherent about sort of like the birth and rebirth cycles and and just experiencing the cold and knowing that that's short-lived and then and, and you know, I, I did get spoiled being out in LA for four years. Just like it would get to 55 and I'm like, oh, it's chilly. <laughs> no, totally that. I feel you on that, Harry, you know, just that kind of rebirthing, you know, it's just kind of, you know, the seasons. I mean, there's a reason we have seasons yes. and, you know, it's amazing summer here, like, you know, 360 days of the, of the year. And of course we, we were thankful for all the rain we got the last few weeks, but, you know, we're still in a drought, you know, we're, we need so much more water to, to fall. There's not a lot of rain on the forecast. And this is our, our rainy season right now. So, you know, just hoping, praying for, for more rain. Yeah, it feels like that's always the conversation. I just remember like living there and, and, and you take it for granted growing up on the East Coast that just rain is normal. Like it's, it just rains every, every now and then. And then when you get there and you're like, it hasn't rained in like three months. It's crazy. Right. <laughs> I mean, and you get one day for like two hours and you're like, everyone's tweeting about it. <laughs> you know, it's extreme weather in California because people go on social media. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the only rain you got to get for the next three months. <laughs> yeah. Or an earthquake too. I experienced a, a sustained tremor, which was like really interesting if you've never been through one as well. So. Yeah, I've been through a couple now that I've been here. Yeah, pretty... Unless you live through one, it's one of those experiences like you can't really, you know, verbally tell someone like the experience until you've actually, you know, d lived through one. And then it's like, holy mackerel, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we certainly didn't get those in the uh, in Fairfax, Virginia growing up. It's a weird, you're right, because you cannot explain what it's like to be sleeping in bed and just have the floor start shaking and realize that you cannot do you can't do anything about it you just have to like hope we're just wondering like how long is this going to last and i think it was maybe 20 to 30 seconds it's just a long time <laughs> yeah oh it is i think the yeah. first one i experienced was 2000 i was down in costa mesa with our engineer 
And uh, I was sleeping at his folks' house. It was probably, you know, one or two in the morning. And I woke up to that whole thing. Bed was shaking. The the artwork was kind of doing the back and forth. Wow. And yeah, then, you know, what do you do? Do you, do you stand in the doorway? Do you <laughs> yeah. go for an interior room? I actually stood in the doorway. And then I wanted to, I went to the front door, which is like apparently a no-no. Right. You're putting yourself at risk kind of doing those things. But yeah, it's just a phenomenon that unless you kind of witness it yourself, it's, it's hard to describe. Yeah. So when did you first get the entrepreneurial bug? So my first go at being an entrepreneur was uh, 1993. I was playing uh, professional basketball in the south of France. Oh, wow. For a couple of years and came back in the spring of 93 and my girlfriend at the time, her brother was a successful studio drummer there in Phoenix. And it's about the same time, the uh, Spin Doctors, if you remember that band. Yep. I'm 59, so we're not too far apart in age. Yeah, yeah. So the Spin Doctors had come out of Tempe. So there's a pretty nice music scene going on. And, and he said, hey, you know, I got a great idea for a, for a business. You know, it's a place for bands to practice. Okay. And uh, he took me to where bands were currently paying to practice. And uh, I said, well, I can, I can do better than, than what's currently being done. And, uh, started, you know, I started with a 15,000 square foot building. And when I sold it, I had over 262 bands practicing there. I had uh, a couple of, I was there two weeks and the band Megadeth showed up and they paid Paid my rent for the first six months. Oh, that's awesome. I should have asked them for twice as much. <laughs> and then Dion Warwick. Oh, that's nice. And UB40. Oh, cool. Practice at my spot. Very cool. And then mostly, I mean, they were all, you know, for the most part, just local, you know, guys that had a day job that, you know, want, you know, the, the aspiring professional musician. So that was my first uh, go at that, at uh, being an entrepreneur. And, and then I... Uh, hooked up with this startup company in, in uh, Prescott, uh, Northern Arizona, and that's what moved me here. So that was my my second, I was uh, employee number two. That was slow veg, right? No, that was that was my uh, third go, my third okay. third go. So the, the, uh, the high-tech startup was super successful. We won best of show at what, what's now called the uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, the CDS. We, CES, yeah. we won best of show. Wow. We had some RFID, some asset tracking, software, hardware. And then I watched, uh, we went through about five CEOs and about $30 million in a couple of years and just watched them pile drive the company in the ground. It was, wow. it was uh, you know, I learned a lot, but it was extremely disappointing. I mean, we had a lot of promise with our technology, but just couldn't get the right people at the, at the leadership positions to, to move us forward. So, and then 2009, of course, we all remember the economy 2009. I, uh, I got the idea here in San Luis to start a home delivered locally grown produce company, a CSA, and started that with 28 customers and sold it with almost 3000 back in 2016. What was happening in your life? Like what, how did you even get the idea for that? So the truth about the, so that idea, so I, my mother had passed away in 05 there on the East coast. So I went back and was living in the town where I went to high school 
close to my dad. And so I came back here to San Luis Obispo in 2008. So I had, there was about a two and a half hour or two and a half year break when I left SLU, moved back to the East Coast, came back. And so this is 2008, the economy's starting to tank. I went to uh, 22 job interviews. I didn't get a single offer. Wow. I was either, you know, kind of that, that quandary, you know, too expensive for, for the economy, or they knew I was going to take a, you know, $50 an hour job and I was going to leave as soon as, you know, that there was something better. So I didn't get a single offer. And I was watching TV at my house one night. I'd probably been back here about a month. And this, there was a show on TV, how I made my first million. Okay. And they had, you know, half of the show is about this scientist, the guy that invented the super soaker, <laughs> yeah. right? The big squirt gun. Yeah. And, and so I, I watched that. And then the second half of that show was about this husband and wife who has started a company in the Bay area called planet organics. Okay. And they had started 13 years prior. They, they did, uh, they had one van, eight pieces of local produce, organic certified organic produce. And so the show was 13 years later, they had 48 bands, did almost 30 million in gross sales. And then in that show, they asked the, the husband and wife, the founders, like, who is your customer? What is the demographic? And they said, well, they're health conscious, they're environmentally conscious, they understand sustaining local economies. And I looked at my girlfriend and I said, man, that's exactly the person that lives here in San Luis Obispo. You know, they, you know, checked all those boxes. And so I literally got up the next morning, called uh, one of my basketball buddies, who was the assistant dean at the School of Agriculture here at Cal Poly. And I said, hey, I got this crazy idea about a home delivered produce company. And he hooked me up with the School of Ag and some seniors did a feasibility study. And I, I literally took about the next nine months and wrote a business plan, learned about, you know, pricing in the ag industry and, uh, and then launched, like I said, June 15th of 2009 with 28 customers. And, you know, again, the economy was, you know, tanking and I just, man, I, it just took off. It was amazing. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I sold it back in 26, July of 2016. So seven years later with almost 3000 customers. That's a nice story. I, what I love is uh, sometimes how the threads of connections, you don't necessarily understand them when they're happening. And you mentioned like you, one of your teammates from the basketball team <laughs> ended up being the person that you reached out to when you had a question about it, because he happened to be in a position that would be helpful. And I don't think you'd ever imagined when you went to go play basketball there that you'd be building relationships that, you know, would be beneficial and, and be helpful for you sometime in the future. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, so I have learned this about, you know, my, you know, the pickup, you know, playing hoops in the pickup gym, right. It's like every genre of occupation is represented, right? You got your, you got your brain surgeon, you got your HVAC guy, you've got your lawyer, your plumber, your, you know, restaurant owner, barber. And so, you know, over, over time, I, you know, to your point, it's, you know, you just, never know when those relationships are going to kind of manifest into something you never even thought about. And, you know, thankful that, you know, of course, just playing pickup, it's just, we're just playing for fun. So, 
those relationships are typically healthy. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like the court is the great equalizer. <laughs> it is, in fact, right? Yeah. So, you know, what did you do after then? Did you kind of sit, you know, after you, you exited that, did you sit and try to figure out what your next move was going to be? Or did you have something in mind already? Well, I had, I had nothing. Well, I, I had, so when I sold it, I actually, in that sale agreement, I part, partition, partitioned off the North County of San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, kind of this other half. And I was going to just replicate my business model up there, you know, use the same farmers, same demographic. Okay. And then I ran into, again, one of my other basketball friends, who's actually a HVAC contractor here. And that actually we ran into each other the day I came to us uh, to an agreement with the buyer of my CSA. So I worked for him for a while, kind of in an interim capacity, kind of till I figured out what my next step was. And in that moment, a builder here on the coast came up to me and said, Hey, you know, we're not really digging your boss, but we like you, Dan. And across the street over there next year, we're going to build 125 more houses. And we would like you to be our HVAC contractor. And I said, well, you know, I know nothing really about the industry. How do, can I get a license? You know, what, how does the math play out if I were to do that? And so it took me about two weeks to figure out, I probably should have been an HVAC contractor my whole life <laughs> because the money is exceptional. Really? And, you know, I, I met the criteria for my California HVAC contractor's license, you know, took the test, did all, you know, submitted all the proper, you know, required paperwork and got my HVAC license here in the state and then partnered with that builder and did, I don't know, roughly about 325 all new homes, new construction. And about a year into it, I realized I was, though I really enjoyed the, the cash, I wasn't having any fun doing it. It was, you know, like model one is model one for the whole subdivision, yeah. <laughs> right? So the parts are the same. Very cookie cutter. Right, totally cookie cutter. And I just got, I did, I just got bored with it. And, and then I, you know, at that point, I knew just within myself, I needed, you know, I needed to start looking for something else. And I'd gotten the idea about this vertical farm about four years ago. And so I, you know, I, I met my contractual obligations with the builder and said, hey, you know, I'm going to move in a different direction. And so, you know, this month makes two years I've been working on this current endeavor, my fifth, my fifth startup. Do you remember when vertical farming came on your radar? I do. It was, again, back when I started my home delivered produce company here, I had one of my customers come up to me and she was actually a rep for a product called the Tower Garden, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. So it's kind of a, it's about a half of a wine barrel made out of plastic. That's a reservoir, has about a four inch or four foot tall tower that can grow about 30 plants in that tower. And, you know, it has a fish pump that kind of percolates the liquid nutrients on top of that. And they kind of trickle down on the roots, you know, kind of. And it's great for, you know, kind of a, a back patio or back balcony. And she was wanted me to sell it to my 
customers there at Slow Veg. And, and I said, absolutely. I mean, this is amazing. How much is that? She's like, well, this is our, our base model and it's $499. And I looked at it and thought to myself, well, that's about $40 worth of plastic and a fish pump. And $499 just seems <laughs> a little over the top. So I immediately pivoted and said, hey, how, how about if I become a distributor? Mm, smart. She said, well, then your cost is like $299. So then I was still going, man, that just, you know, that just seems super expensive. But that was my introduction to, to vertical farming. I didn't know anything about it. I, I didn't know what you could grow or it and or any, I knew zero about it since that moment, 2009, even through today, I'm still tracking the development industry of vertical farming. And then again, about four years ago, I just kind of, the light bulb went off in my head and it's like, man, it's so they, as you well know, it's, you know, in shipping containers, it's a controlled environment or it's repurposed warehouses and urban environments which are all magnificent, but they have some limitations, right? The kind of a, that control environment just mandates a, a substantial uh, energy requirement to manage the heating, cooling, lighting, hydroponic components. I mean, you can't, it's on the grid. And so I, I got the idea like, man, why can't we just kind of take the, you know, solar hydroponic vertical and kind of put those parts and pieces together in a really dummy down fashion, you know, to get to the guy that, you know, lives somewhere that's not getting good food, but isn't close to this urban environment or close to the grid. Yeah. And did any of the experience in HVAC help in terms of like on the mechanical side? I'm just curious about that. No. So I actually am part of currently still part of so Cal Poly, you know, again, has a, they have what they call a hothouse and incubator program for, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs. But in parallel to that, they have, it's supported by the Small Business Association called the Small Business Development Center. So that, that runs in parallel to the incubator hothouse. I applied for that January last year, got accepted. And so I get all those Cal Poly resources for free. Oh, wow. And so last school year, I had seven seniors and three PhDs helping. I had five industrial technology students. Wow. Plus the department chair and another PhD. So they have, they've given me like 40 pages of white paper to tell me exactly how this production, you know, we're going to come in the front right, front left corner of a warehouse and we're going, it's going to be a, just a blank 20 foot shipping container. And it's going to move around the interior perimeter and it's going to come out the other corner, front corner, ready to ship. And so though, you know, that information would have, you know, if I had hired an engineering firm would cost me, you know, a hundred grand. I got it for free. The kids got <laughs> a great experience, you know, putting yeah. it together. And then I had two more students kind of on the entrepreneur on the business side of Cal Poly that did my websites started going down the path with kind of that social media. You know, I am of the age, as I said, 59, where, you know, those platforms, those social platforms, Instagram, TikTok, you know, how often do you do it? When do you do it? You know, I missed all that, right? That yeah. was, that came after my kind of professional life. So those students were invaluable and, 
and uh, you know, helping me understand how the messaging needs to happen once I kind of start rolling this out. So I think some of the questions folks might have that are familiar with the space, it runs a gamut as you know, you've alluded to, and, and we've had folks here from, you know, freight farms and, you know, who do focus on the shipping containers, which I'm sure you've you know, had are familiar with them. And then obviously to the, the Bowery's, the Plenty's, the Aero Farms, yep, yep. you know, the, the, the mega large operations. So part of what is important, I think is educating folks as to the different options. And that's why our, our platinum sponsor cultivated has been really helpful as a, as a entry point for people who are interested, you know, they, they kind of see where their interest lies and then they direct them to the appropriate project. And then it's free to them because the partner pays cultivated. So that's, that's how that they make their money and, and they're able to serve more people. So yeah. we always talk about on the show about the education process. And so as you yourself are getting educated in opportunities and how you want to sell this and who, what would be a good market for this farm? How do you distinguish what vertical growth farming currently offers? So I think that we are, I mean, we're going to be a game changer in the vertical farming space. And I say that for a couple of reasons. So yes, you've got your, you know, your, what I call industrial size guys in vertical farming, you know, both as well as venture, you know, the venture capitalist money where they're putting it in vertical farming. Yeah. It's all these, you know, kind of behemoth implementations. Right. And I've watched freight farms, you know, for the last 11 years and, and they're amazing. Their product's amazing. They definitely, you know, they're on whatever the radiation of you know, the next rev of their product. So they're, they're just bigger, better, stronger than they were when they started. But again, those are all, they are handcuffed to the power grid and they require a lot of power because they are climate controlled environments and mother nature, as we all know, she's a beast, you know, she's going to hunt down agricultural efforts, even in controlled environments and, you know, try to make mold happen or, you know, <laughs> she's just going to try to beat you up at every yeah, turn. Yeah, yeah. And so what differentiates us from, well, certainly we're not of that size and scope. So I would say who I consider indirect competitors are only two companies today. One's called Farm From A Box. They're based out of the Bay Area. So they have a 20 foot shipping container. You get two acres of drip irrigation. So you get about 80,000 feet of drip irrigation. They're totally off the grid. You got to have a fresh water source to kind of hook up to. And then they have a cold storage so you can, uh, inside the container, so you can take the, the output of those two acres and give it some shelf life. So I met with the principals a couple of years ago when I just started down this path with my project. And they were very forthcoming. They're like, hey, you know, we lost sales because the potential customer, the soil wasn't any good. And just because you give it water doesn't mean you get to grow things, right? So they lost sales. And then they had some sales that, that took more than three years to totally, you know, beginning to, to you know, getting the check cut to them because those customers did want to amend the soil. And then that takes, you know, two or three years to amend soil to then put it on and start farming. So they're, and they've done very well. I think they're seven years old this year, seven or eight years old. I think they're, you know, millions in sales. So they're, they're doing well, but, but they are handcuffed by 
the soil. So I've taken, you know, ours is soilless, no soil. So that's out of the equation. And then the other who I just found last summer was Farm in a Pod. They're currently based out of St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands, and they actually are an aquaponic vertical farm. And so they're, you know, like us, you know, you got to have fresh water source. But once you land their 20-foot container, they give you on the inside, they kind of give you the parts and pieces to build a, a greenhouse on top of that container. That's where the vertical tubes are all hanging. Okay. And then interior below is where the aquaponics fish are. And I spoke to the principal there as well in, in August, and I was looking at his, his website, kind of checking him out before I called. They've gotten a prototype. They're not in production yet. They're on St. Croix because they know they need to be next to a, to a port to get it, to ship it. And I started looking at that, and I was like, okay, so what happens when the fish die? Because they got a shelf life, okay? And then what happens when you harvest the crop, like how do you, how do you reload it? Well, we have a grow room in our shipping container so we can go from seed to seedling and we have a walk-in cooler and it's all driven by solar. So we're completely off the grid. And so, you know, I've been talking to the future farmers of America. So we're gonna roll out three pilot programs this year here in the next six months. We're gonna do one at my Future Farmers of America chapter at my old high school. That's talk about coming full circle. <laughs> right, exactly. Because kids need to understand. So there's a, you know, some say that by 2030, we're gonna be out of complete, the earth is gonna be completely out of topsoil. Wow. And some say it could be 2050. So even if you go 2050, we're out of topsoil. That's why regenerative farming is really picking up because we've learned that disking and just destroying that ecosystem, you know, that first six inches is problematic to the health of the soil. But ours, you know, if I sell uh, my product to uh, the FFA chapter in Chicago, for example, come November 1st, two kids can disassemble it within an hour shove it all back in the shipping container, lock the doors, put a lock on it, and then come April 1st in Chicago, open it back up, set it back up, start growing again. And then of course you can take the output of the farm. So our particular design produces 1700 super nutritious plants every 60 days. If you had a, if you could grow year round. And so then you can take that output if you're an FFA chapter, put it back into your, your food costs for the cafeteria, you know, and it's, you know, uber nutritious. Or you could say to those kids, hey, go sell those 1,700 heads of lettuce in your neighborhood and we can raise, you know, $1,700 to go to the national convention. You know, you can, you know, they can do it however they want. So those things really differentiate us from even those two kind of, you know, closely related competitors. And when you said that, that, what I immediately thought of was being asked to sell chocolate bars when I was <laughs> right. in grade school and now it's heads of lettuce. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was, I was on the tennis team. I was in band. I was on the debate team in high school. I was kind of that, that geek. And of course, all of those, you know, if you're not like football, if you're not a major sport in a high school, you know, you got to come up with your own funding. And I'm sure that's probably true today to some extent. So how important was it to 
You talked about the ability for the two students to, to, to tear it down and, and lock it up for the season. And you talked about the ability to work with the, the high school. Looking forward, and this is some of the conversations we've had on the show, but how important do you think it is the education aspect of like educating, involving the community, having them, you know, self-sustainability, this idea of like growing crops to, you know, to fund, you know, projects, you know, how do you think about those things going forward? Well, I think they're paramount, actually. I mean, you can't move forward without a, a good foundation of education. And, and we're running out of, you know, the population continues to grow. We are losing farmable land. So this, again, just world in a worldwide kind of scope, right? But, you know, we're growing in population. We're losing farmable land. And so those are diametrically opposed to each other. So how do we... You know, what's the, a salute, what's a viable solution? Well, you, you're running out of space, you're running out of good soil. Vertical farming's got to just continue. Whatever it is today, it's going to be more important tomorrow. I firmly believe that. And so those, yeah, those, that youth coming, you know, coming up are going to have to understand you know, the, the engineering, the science, the methodology. So I, that's kind of my, you know, my segue into the FFA is we're going to do this pilot and I'm going to go to the, you know, the DC, talk to the national, you know, organization and go, Hey, you have 8,600 chapters sprinkled around the U S you know, of course for myself, I would like to sell them 8,600 units, <laughs> Yeah, but at least let's get it out there and you know, what I, what, you know, some of the kind of the, the darker aspects of, of what I've learned. So for example, pre-pandemic, there was roughly 690 million people going to bed hungry every night. Now that number is 820. Wow. Of that 820, roughly 40 million are right here in the U.S. of A. Of that 40 million, 13 million are kids to mostly single mothers. One of our other pilots, we're talking to the Navajo Nation because unfortunately, you know, it's not in any history books that I ever read growing up, but, you know, we came, we took the best land because that's where the Native American was habitating and said, hey, go to Northern Arizona where there's no water and there's no soil and you guys live here. Well, believe it or not, you know, the like there are communities within the Navajo nation today that don't have access to fresh water. Now that just, wow. that makes me mad. Right. Yeah. And so you say, say, Hey, you know, if, if you had, here's how the math works with our system. If you had eight of those shipping containers, eight by 20, if you had eight of them, we can feed a family of a hundred for a year with healthy calories. So, what kind of crops are you growing? So we're growing so super nutritious leafy greens, right? We got the, the rainbow shards, the mustard greens. Uh, you know, in Africa, well, outside of the U.S., a lot of the world eats dandelion because it's like it's like kale on steroids, right? <laughs> super healthy, yeah. Well, what did we do here in the U.S.? We made a weed killer for it, right? So wild, not that smart, but so that's why you know we're. We've, I've been engaging, you know, part of this two-year run I'm on is talking to like the World Food Program, Action Against Hunger, Feed America, 
because they're the ones that are going to purchase our product and deploy to, you know, those underserved communities throughout the world. But we have them, again, we have them right here in the U.S. Yeah. And so, you know, your urban planners, your city planners, community gardens. Now, you know, when, when city planners, urban planners are like mapping out growth, they are in fact putting gardens on the map. And so it's like, hey, drop one of these in here. And then you can, you know, an inherent attribute to our system is who's ever kind of the steward or the farmer of the system can now become an entrepreneur. For say, if I were to tell someone in Kenya, okay, we're gonna teach you, educate you, service and support you, and, and you're gonna grow 1,700 heads of lettuce every 60 days, you only need so much for your family, so what are you gonna do with the other output? Well, you're gonna barter, trade, sell, and you're gonna raise your own economy by participating in, you know, the farming of, of our system. I think what's important also is it's a long game. And I think people <laughs> need to realize that because part of what you mentioned is the education process and also weaning people off these, these habits they have because they've been given access to cheap food, cheap junk food, you know, fast food. And, you know, there's, there's part of that is going to be, you know, maybe it's a new generation, but just teaching people healthy eating habits, because you could make, you could have the, the farm on site, you could have it at a, at a competitive price and you could make sure that they know that they have access to it. And then, th but they also have to believe that that's something that they want. And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge that the industry is going to have, because I think there's no shortage of projects that are going to make this more accessible. It is education. You do have to teach people how the entrepreneurs in that cohort are going to have to understand how to manage this, run a successful business, you know, not go broke, not lose money and also how to market it. And so there's so many moving parts, but I think, I think the education of not only the people running these, but also the, you know, making it sexy, I guess, you know, making, making produce sexy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> a, that's a challenge of itself, but I think you're right. And I think, you know, if you look, it's just for example, like how the the non-meat, the vegan industry, right? It's accelerating right now. I mean, KFCs, I mean, is coming out with, you know, meatless chicken, right? So I think societally, we are starting to realize like the gut buster Mountain Dew every day is going to lead to diabetes. Yeah, It's going to lead to poor health. You know, let's not, you know, but again, that comes at an early age, right? that you got to teach kids like, hey, instead of, you know, grabbing for a Coke, you need to be grabbing for just a good old glass of water. Yeah. And if you want to eat something, you know, here's eat a piece of fruit and not a Snickers bar. So I think that's happening at a very, it's a low rumble right now, right? It's percolating, but it, it's going to be key to, you know, as we move forward to, for kids to, to understand like, hey, you know, you, you know, you can't just go plant some more food. You know, the, the, you just can't, you know, that's not a, that's not an actual remedy to, you know, feed, feeding. And so what are the remedies? Well, vertical farming. And if you live in a city and not far away from one of those behemoth where converted warehouses, you know, if you're kind of out in, you know, out in the woods in Kentucky, you know, for that family, you know, how are you going to 
feed your kids healthy every night. How's that going to happen? Yeah, it's, it's, it reminds me of the challenge uh, when people talk about uh, broadband access to everyone, fiber optics. It, there's always like that question about the last mile, like like how do you get into the household? And and it feels like there's something similar here. Like to your point, you, you know, it's helpful to have the awareness of having the big box, you know, vertical farms, but they're likely making partnerships with supermarkets who traditionally have not been in these areas. And so how do you, you know, there is a hybrid solution here where you educate people and make it accessible. And, and I think the more people in the community see like a family member or see a neighbor, you know, express an interest to in them or purchase a vertical farm, you know, it's just like the curiosity effect. I think building up curiosity around what, what's happening in this industry, is, I think is really helpful. And a younger generation, I think, sees vertical farming as something cool. Like, you know, when I grew, when I lived in New York, it used to be cool to have like a chicken coop in Brooklyn, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Or on, on your roof, you know, and, and that was like, a, you know, something the hipsters did. But now it's like, you know, maybe it's a vertical farm or, or maybe it's something similar. And, and I think with the, the sort of, we got awoken up, you know, the past two years with, with the pandemic and the importance of this. And I think people are aware it's top of mind and they are looking for alternative solutions. So, you know, I keep harping on this on every episode, but the more people are, are talking about this, the more there's different opportunities available. And, and I think what you're doing and, you're, and, the, and the partnerships and alliances you've built with some of these organizations, with the university and, and thinking bigger about re, you know, going to DC and having those conversations, I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited. You know, I, I am, you know, to be totally forthcoming. It's been, you know, when you talk to any philanthropic group like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? There's a reason there's not a phone number on their website. It's kind of the same with the World Health Organization and, and Action Against Hunger. I mean, they, they um, you know, they're just a huge bureaucratic machine. And so, you know, I, I'm, I continue to work myself up the food chain, if you will, to the guy that's going to, you know, take a hard look at our, at our product, try to understand, you know, the methodology, how to implement. And those relationships take time. And so we're, we're really hoping, you know, with these three pilots, you know, we're going to get some great intel, you know, we're going to have one in Phoenix, Arizona to kind of mimic Sub-Sahara Africa. So, you know, are we watering those 1,700 plants, you know, eight times a day or 15 times a day because it's 110 for 60 days in a row? And then what plastic parts are problematic? And, you know, so we're going to get some good intel from, a, you know, having those being deployed and then you know, hopefully, like I said, you know, this time next year, start, you know, actually producing them and kind of getting them up out rolling into the communities, you know, here, here in afar. That's going to be exciting. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? So the, so we have just started down the path of fundraising. Okay. I've done all my appropriate SEC state and federal filings, you know, to to engage investors. So I'm a definitely a compliance driven person. You know, I didn't want to get the cart before the horse. And so for my potential investors here, and I've got about 30 guys here in San Luis that are, you know, some percentage are going to help me with this endeavor. And so the biggest question has been, do you have a working prototype? You know, guys want to kick the tires. Hey, I'll give you some money, Dan. Show me it working. So I totally get that. And that's really been the, and we've just gotten to that. So, you know, next week I'm 
I'm going to take 15 guys on a Wednesday and do my show and tell, if you will, there at the, at the working prototype here in San Luis. And then 15 more guys on, on Thursday, because the only component today that I can't buy off the shelf is the actual grow tube. And the reason for that is because they're going to be sitting out, you know, in the sub-Sahara sun. So they have to be food grade and they also have to be UV resilient. Right. Yeah. And so that I can't buy today off the open market. So, and to buy the tool to make the tube is about 80, 80 grand. But once I buy the tool, I own the tool. Yeah. Um, so, so really the, the hardest part has been, well, the hardest questions, the hardest one's been from my wife, like, Hey, when are you going to make a, you know, make some money? Yeah, yeah. Cause I've been, you know, self-funding for two years now. So thankful for her and her support for sure. And then the other one's like, Hey, when are you going to have a working prototype? You gotta, you gotta show us, you know, you can look at this amazing little 45 second video I have of the kind of the system, which looks great and is very, you know, telling in the 45 seconds. But, you know, again, it doesn't prove to a potential investor that, Hey, this is a viable product. So. Yeah, I think having them on the ground and kicking the tires and, uh, you know, working with what you have and being able to touch it, I think is really puts it the real use case in front of their eyes and they can see the application of it and then having you describe how it's going to work. So maybe just related to that, since you have the stage, is, is there an ask of this audience that you have? Well, so I would first just uh, steer them towards my website, which is verticalgrowth.farm. Mm-hmm. And just see, you know, what we're trying to get to. And then, yes, I mean, you can reach out to me if there's uh, any interest in investing. You know, I have my website has my email address on there. Please feel free. We, we really feel we've got a game changer because, first of all, the, those two other kind of competitive products, they start about 72000 and kind of, you know, if you add kind of the bells and whistles, it starts creeping up. Just like freight farms, you can get the basic model, like you buy a car, right? Yeah, yeah. Our model is gonna be right about 40 grand. Okay. And so, you know, we're excited about the price point, entry into the market. And, you know, my thanks to you is, you know, I wanna, I've got a, I'm kind of in that, hey, let's start putting it out to the world and kind of see what we, what we, you know, feedback we get back from our efforts. So, and today the most important thing is, you know, funding, you can, you know, every, everything needs funding. Yeah. The good thing is that even with the, the visibility of the bigger names coming in, the VC money coming in, it still like creates that buzz so that other investors who are not at that level. And, you know, maybe speaking to some of the folks that you have locally, I think they see it, they probably are not ready to play at that space, but they know someone personally that's doing something. So they're like, well, the market is validating that this is a there's a lot of movement here in a positive direction i think so that sort of i i would think helps your case as well because they're like okay tangentially they see okay this is part of that way and i i want to you know get in on the ground level and this might be a good opportunity no i think it is just that so we've taken on some investors we just started taking on investors about three weeks ago and you know they're personal friends i've known them 21 years they're all local people and they're you know so I've got five investors, three of them are just really into it for the purpose of it, 
right? So that's your social impact investor. They, they're not really in, I mean, they want to return, but they're doing it because, because they know the world needs help and this can help the world. Yeah. Um, and then you have, you know, a couple of them are like, yeah, this is pretty amazing. And, and there's a lot of money in the space to be made and you're at early, early into the space. We want to kind of ride those coattails. And I think both are, are equally, you know, valid, of course. But we're definitely going to be more of the social impact investor. I mean, we're going to, you know, if you look at our financial projections, we're at about 80 million seven years from now. Again, at 59, you know, I'm going to exit. We think we can take that, you know, stock dollar. The stock today is being offered at 80 cents. I think seven years, it could be eight to $10. Of course, that's all speculation, right? I mean, that's the, the truth of it. But I think a majority of our investors are going to be that, that uh, you know, social impact. You know, like, hey, this is really a good thing and it's going to do a lot of good. How can I help support it? Yeah. Well, Dana, for the listeners' benefit, we connected on originally LinkedIn. I it, think you, it was. <laughs> so thanks for making that outreach. And you know, there's so much happening in the space. As much as I'd like to think I'm, I'm on top of everything that's happening, I, I love like just one-off um, emails from folks uh, that are doing interesting things. And so I'm, I'm glad you were persistent in sharing what you have working on. And, and I think it's that entrepreneurial spirit that you have that, that you just, you know, you, you, you got to do whatever it takes to, to get the word out when you're self-funded and you're bootstrapped, which I can definitely relate to as an entrepreneur myself. So. Yeah, for sure. And I'll, t I'll tell you how I found you on LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I literally Googled like, who's the lead podcaster in vertical farming and Harry Duncan. It's like, okay, yeah. who is this guy? You know, start yeah. hunting him down. And, and I, you know, I certainly appreciate, you know, your, your efforts yeah. on my behalf. You know, it's a life's a journey and, you know, we're, we're all interconnected. So, you know, if you're not doing good, I'm probably not going to do good either. So yeah. I, I really believe in that. Yeah, there is a rising tide lifts all boats aspect to this, which I think is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, verticalgrowth.farm, yeah. farm, which is a great URL, by the way. So <laughs> congratulations on snagging that. That's a nice one. And so we'll have links. Obviously, any resources that were mentioned here, we'll pull them together in the show notes as well. And the contact information to reach out to you is on the site as well? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story and, and your entrepreneurial journey and uh, everything you're doing for the, the vertical farming community. I think it's really inspiring and, and hopefully gets other folks inspired to understand that you don't need a tremendous investment and there's room for for you if you're just looking to get your feet wet, just get started. And I think this would be a, a good resource to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for your time, Dan. Thanks, Harry. And uh, happy new year to, to you and yours. Wish you, uh, you know, all the health, right? Stay healthy. And, uh, and en enjoy the Midwest yeah. as much as one can. <laughs> I will. Take care. Thanks again to Dandridge for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks to our season four title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking for a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that the last E. Don't forget to sign up for the Indoor AgCon conference at indoor.ag. Save an additional 25% off registration with our promo code VFPOD22. 
Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free chat at fullcast.co. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.